All over the world, democracy is on the knife's edge. Russia has invaded Ukraine. Military coups have taken over in Burma and Zimbabwe. And at home, we're fighting for the soul of America, where armed insurrectionists tried to overturn an election and lawmakers are using the levers of government to silence history. This is why listeners like you subscribe to Democracy in Danger, hosted by Will Hitchcock and Siva Vadianathan from the University of Virginia's Media Lab. Each week, Democracy in Danger features leading thinkers to discuss serious threats to democracy, from the dark web and media disinformation to climate change, economic inequality, and violent extremism. So listen to Democracy in Danger to become a more informed, engaged citizen. To listen, search Democracy in Danger on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do to fix them. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. Today, we're really happy to welcome Heather Herbert to the program. She's the director of the New Models of Policy Change Project at New America's Political Reform Program. She leads research in how policy advocacy can adapt to be effective in our current environment of intense political polarization and guides advocates and funders navigating politics effectively on behalf of policy solutions on issues such as national security and climate change. We're really looking forward to having a a national security conversation with her today. She's contributed to New York Magazine, Politico, Foreign Affairs, Vox, Time. She co-hosts a podcast. She's all over the print and broadcast media and It's definitely been on my radar for a long time as a national security expert that I've been hoping to get some time with here on the podcast. So welcome, Heather. I'm so glad to have you. Thanks. I've secretly been wanting to do this podcast for quite a while. So I'm sorry for the occasion, but glad to be here. Yeah, This. so we're talking today, This we're recording here on Monday, March 7th, 2022. And our purpose is talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and U.S. political involvement. And we want to put a kind of U.S. political institution spin on that question. So I want to actually start out by just really going over kind of the basics of the situation from a U.S. involvement perspective. Heather, if you would speak to the question of, you know, what are the U.S.'s options here and what are the the risks of each one? Thanks. And thanks for putting it that way. So just to remind what has happened over the last few months and even years really, is that we've had a slow motion buildup of Russian forces on the borders of, and indeed by kind of stealthy, not quite counting as conventional war methods, taking away parts of a state, Ukraine, which is not a US ally, which has, um, toward which the US has no treaty obligations, but whose government has made it clear over the years and whose people have ousted governments when they didn't hew to this line that it desired to be allied to the United States and that it desired to be a member of NATO and have a treaty relationship and a defense obligation with the U.S. So so the U.S. is not obliged to do anything. And that leaves a U.S. president in the position where, where he or she could, in fact, choose to do nothing, as you know, the U.S. does when countries in other parts of the world get into border wars with one another. 
the U.S. could choose to focus on ending the conflict above all else using diplomatic means to that end. The U.S. could choose to use diplomatic and economic means to try to end the conflict, but on terms more favorable to one side or the other, in particular Ukraine. Then there's a whole suite of ways that the U.S. can offer military support to Ukraine and try to put pressure on Russia without actually committing U.S. forces or NATO forces. And then there's the line um, beyond which the U.S. can do, can take military steps that start to look like actual U.S. acts of aggression against Ukraine. And where we are right now is the Biden administration um, taking many, many really unprecedented economic steps, as well as military steps to aid Ukraine, but without committing any U.S. personnel or U.S.-owned military equipment to the fight, and actually working really hard to say over and over again to Moscow, we are not trying to escalate. We do not want to get in a wider war. We do not want NATO to be in a war. But that's a challenging line to hold. I wonder if I could uh, jump in here and pick up on that last point, because I think it's really important. And I'm reminded of something way back in grad school in like 2003, 2002, um, when I was going back through my foreign policy notes and looking at some of the things I wrote at the time. And I came across this page and the only thing on it is a, is a sentence that I wrote down. And it says, a basic lack of understanding for another's point of view leads to policy mistakes. I think that's very correct and apt. And I'm wondering, in this current instance, have our institutions, have our politics, have our representatives, have our foreign policy establishment, have the American people themselves spent enough time, in your opinion, dwelling on why Putin and the Russian army, the Russian government, maybe the Russian people are doing this? What reasons do they have to do this, whether we think they're legitimate or not. This is not an effort to say, well, everybody's okay, but it's not. I mean, you can still be right and wrong, good and bad. But why are they doing this? Is it to keep the Ukraine from getting further into the kind of Western sphere of influence in NATO and Europe and outside of the Russian sphere of influence? Is it to distract from potential bad things happening at home on the domestic front for, for Putin? There are all sorts of different explanations, but it seems to me that our policies may be counterproductive if we don't fully accept the reasons why the Russians are doing this. And if we do fully accept them, then we can at least open our eyes, acknowledge the constraints that we're going to face, and then craft a policy accordingly, as opposed to waking up 20 years later and saying, well, that didn't really work out, which is what happened in Afghanistan. I don't need to go into Iraq and Vietnam and so on and so on. But what, what's your take on our, the current political debate over what's happening in Ukraine in this country and its ability to process why Putin's foreign policy looks like this? You're absolutely right to note that going back at least as far as Vietnam, the U.S. Um, decision-making structures have a really, really bad time processing the ideas that other other societies have their own logics and, and their own imperatives. So that we there's a, there's a set of mistakes that U.S. institutions, frankly, across party control and across time make over and over again. 
Um, we seem culturally to have a really extreme tendency to expect other societies' decision-making and priorities to, to mirror our own. And when they don't, we tend to dismiss them as illogical and not engage with them. And that's notwithstanding that the U.S. has had in every single one of the conflicts you ticked off, very smart, very deeply enmeshed in the culture, people working on it who, who understood what they were seeing. Although I also think there's a, a very interesting discussion been going on in the Russian studies field where political analysts of Russia have said, we got this one wrong. We didn't believe that Russia would really invade because we saw the consequences as being so dire for Russia. Whereas military analysts of Russia have been saying, hey, we saw what was happening and we told you all couldn't be anything else but an invasion. So yes, the US has a huge problem correctly and clearly understanding the motivations of other, other societies and, and it, isn't a new, it isn't a new problem. Indeed, there's also a huge um, fight raging on Twitter and other places um, among different schools of thought in international relations theory about why this is happening. So I can tick off some whys, but I don't think we have, and I don't think we ever will have, I mean, you know, unless Putin tells us, and even then we can debate underlying structural factors, the reasons why this happens. So Look, reason number one is sort of very, very fundamental geopolitics. Many, many of Russia's northern ports are not all that accessible. Russia wants more direct routes to the Black Sea, to the Medi and from there to the Mediterranean, from there down to the uh, Middle East, where they've got a nice geopolitical foothold for themselves in Syria. Russia does not want to be vulnerable to the West in any form, whether it's NATO, whether it's not NATO. Historically, Ukraine, along with Belarus and Poland, also served that purpose. So no Russian government of any ideological stripe, again, facing any configuration in the West, is ever going to be wildly enthusiastic about a government in Kiev becoming very independent and very closely cozied up to its its opponents. So those are all sort of factors that are, in my view, just factors that one can observe about the Russian state, even before one gets into the ideologically charged argument about, about NATO. In addition, right, speaking of societies with constrained institutional options, um, Putin has not been successful in growing and diversifying the Russian economy much beyond the oil and gas industry. So he's got a very large country with a very highly educated population that wants to see itself as a great nation in the world, but that is, is very badly hitched to the boom and bust cycle of a natural resources economy. It's not clear that a, a post-fossil fuels world is one that Russia is really going to thrive in. And he has been seeing small but significant challenges to his to his rule, even before these just amazing demonstrations and shows of bravery by opposition within Russia that we've all seen since the war. So in some ways, you know, sort of the other, the other why factor that we're sitting on um, is that within Russia, Putin's sitting on some kind of wasting or decaying assets that his time to assert himself and to, to keep, as Russians would see it, Ukraine in its rightful position in relation to them the circumstances were never going to get any better. Last point, and again, back to your point about, about misperception, as badly 
as we may misunderstand Russia, it's also clear that Putin and Moscow misunderstood what was going on in the West very badly and that they thought, A, that um, the sort of Trump era division of the Republican Party in particular over whether Russia is a friend or foe would prevent the U.S. from from mounting a, a determined resistance, that U.S.-European relations were still so fragmented and the Germans, having just elected a government headed by a party that's historically very friendly to Russia, but has a former prime minister actually or had on the board of one of Russia's oil companies and is so dependent on Russia for natural gas and energy, Moscow never, ever imagined that Europe would come together with Germany in the lead in the way that it has. So that's a long-winded way of saying that there were a variety of structural factors and miscalculations, and um, we have the comfort that we are we are hardly alone. And in this case, we we may not even have been the ones who made the worst miscalculations. This is really interesting, and it's it's really valuable to hear you talk about how sometimes in the U.S. foreign policy space, people have trouble grasping the idea that there might be a logic to a situation that's not our logic. I have been thinking a lot about what is the domestic logic of understanding foreign policy? Because it, it seems to me one of the kind of important pieces of this is that it, it only like burbles up into public consciousness occasionally. And that is that is part of what shapes what that looks like. Here's how I think about it from an institution's perspective. And I'd be curious about kind of your, your reactions to that. And I've got some questions about how we can move forward as, as a country as we think about these things. So as a presidency scholar and someone who teaches the American presidency, the, the two things that kind of come up in the literature that I try to engage my students in are questions of kind of who's making the decisions and who's talking to the president and who's gatekeeping who the president talks to. So it's a sort of institutional presidency literature. And then it's the kind of war powers literature, which tends to be very normative and very legalistic and is, you know, always comes to the same conclusion, really, whether we're talking about Bush or Clinton, Trump, Obama, is that, you know, the, the president did these war things that were illegal. Then, you know, maybe Trump is, is actually one of the presidents who did fewer of those things. He had fewer occasions. But it's always oversteps, the president oversteps. And we get stuck in this sort of question about, well, what is what is wrong with American political institutions that this is how our foreign policy decision-making process is structured that is so concentrated in the executive branch? And what is it that holds Congress back? And I don't really have an answer to that question, but it does occur to me, like there's a couple other pieces of the domestic domestic puzzle that I think are interesting. One is that it, it really, to allude to kind of some of what you were saying before, but the GOP split, it really seems to me like neither party ha particularly has a well-articulated philosophy of how we should approach different international relationships and conflicts. I've thought this for a long time about Democrats in particular, because it was so important to the party to run against the Iraq war in 2008. And yet it was kind of like, well, when other types of issues came up in the Middle East later on, I was like, well, now what? What are the guiding principles that shape that and that sort of link foreign policy to some sense of, of the worldview that the party wants to embrace while simultaneously not imposing our own, our own political frameworks on other parts of the world? And that comes to, I think, kind of my second, the second part of it, which it seems to me that just as administrations tend not to be that different in their approaches in a lot of ways, that we still tend to impose our own culture war framework on a lot of these questions, including, I think, that like there's a culture war dimension to the 
whole question of presidential war power that actually gets mapped onto visions of like masculinity and strength and nationalism, like, you know, what is a leader? And you do see this in some of the, in some of the debate um, where there's, a, there's a certain type of conservative that is drawn to, to what Putin offers. And you also see a lot of people who were like the same people who had resistance buttons on during the Trump administration, who were really drawn to Zelensky. And I don't want to, I don't take anything away from the, the true bravery that he's showing, but then he's kind of become this like, cultural internet figure of the left of the kind of leader that that people want to see in the imposition of these these sorts of cultural and pop cultural frameworks and so the the question that i pose is kind of like how can we have our productive domestic debate about foreign policy this is my very long-winded wind-up i try not to do this with guests but i i did this time is you know can we have a productive foreign policy debate that simultaneously engages with principles and with questions about how we want our our country to be in the world and interact with the world that doesn't impose our own frameworks on these sorts of uh, international situations. So I could just give you a one word answer, no. (laughs) But so let's, let me try to unpack some of that, although there's several, there's several graduate seminars there. So first of all, I think it's, it's important to point out that Presidential power has gotten more and more concentrated over the decades. And I find the work that says um, presidential power grows pretty much in tandem with the growth of U.S. military power and the the sort of centralization of of military apparatus. That the more, you know, really starting um, with Roosevelt and building from there and that you see another big bump after 9-11. And frankly, after 9-11, you see both a decline in the congressional in the powers that Congress clawed back after the Nixon era, and a decline in the powers of the departments, um, and everything moves back toward the White House, which reduces the sort of ability of of the coalition that is any given president's administration to actually influence a president. Because I will also make the point that we tend um, there tends to be a school of thinking about foreign policy that says it's a very unitary, and I actually think. American foreign policy just easily disproves that and that it's useful instead to think about a president as sitting on top of a coalition of forces and sort of constantly asking him or herself, what do I want to do here? What can I get away with? And I can quote you wonderful, wonderful examples from Eisenhower checking with all kinds of domestic constituencies before deciding to recognize the state of Israel to members of Congress calling labor union presidents who barely ever been outside the country and saying, hey, how should I vote on um, bombing Syria? So the coalition politics aspect of it is is very much alive and well in the U.S., which sort of brings me to a third point. Congress has both had its power leached away from it by an expanding executive, but also as the U.S. has in the post 9-11 period, gotten involved in this string of wars and long-term deployments that were bloody and messy. And as members of Congress looked at the spectacle of blame casting for the original 9-11 attacks and then the subsequent near-miss terrorist attacks, it got much easier for the executive to have to take all the blame. So there are a lot of things, and this is why, this to your question about war powers, this is why Congress there's never a majority of members of Congress who are interested in voting to authorize or deauthorize any of these things, because that way they can't be blamed. It's always President X's war, whoever President X is. Um, maybe just one last comment here. 
which is that over the last 15 years, um, foreign and security policy went from being one of the least polarized issues that we that we deal with in the U.S. to one of the most up until 2020. You tell me your party affiliation. I could tell you what you think about Russia. I could tell you what you think about China. What you think about trade will depend on whether your party is in the White House or not. If your party is in the White House, you think trade is good. If it's not, you think trade is bad. That's actually started to crumble a little bit in recent years. Frankly, I think for the reasons you say that there's such a worldview fight going on within both parties that we don't really have a decision yet about how the various worldviews that you see um, fighting, duking it out, what, how that translates internationally. And this is one of those moments when people do look at what they see on TV and they really don't like it and they try to connect it back to things that are familiar, that things could crystallize very quickly in a way that lasts for a long time. That's really mm-hmm. fascinating. James? Yeah, no, I, I want to I pick up on that as well. We... we most of us, I would say we all know, but I think I, that's probably not the case. But John Marshall's sole organ speech he delivered in the House of Representatives before he became Secretary of State and eventually the uh, Chief Justice, the famous Chief Justice of the United States. And he says the president is the sole organ you know, in our external relations. And today we have this idea of a unitary presidency and we have taken this kind of sole organ doctrine, if you will. And we've said it's the president. The president's the one who decides. But the president is what Marshall was saying is the sole organ in implementing our foreign policy. But in reality, when it comes to the content of that policy, it's actually Congress. It's it's our democratic institutions uh, because we are, after all, a democratic uh, self-government. We are not ruled by a president in foreign policy and not in other areas. And so I find this really interesting because it's not just the president grasping at power. It's also the Congress, the people's elected representatives, pushing that power towards the presidency because it's convenient. It's scholars increasingly in the media casting our politics in terms of uh, red versus blue, of the president versus the Congress, et cetera, because it's a lot easier to explain that way. It doesn't get as complicated. But I think the real reality, the reality of this situation is that we get a dysfunctional environment where you don't have issues that are fully adjudicated. And by fully, I mean just adjudicated at all. You don't have things that are debated. I mean, the imperialist debate in the late 19th century, where you have two Democratic senators from South Carolina getting into a fistfight over whether we should annex Cuba is very instructive. It tells you that these are important issues and that debating them is needed and that the consequences of one policy versus another policy are very great. And whatever policy we ultimately choose, if we don't make it in those democratic settings, if our representatives don't make it for us, if we don't see our claims adjudicated, when things get kind of hot, when the bullets start flying, all of a sudden it gets to be very, very different. And it becomes very hard to sustain. And I think we saw this in Iraq and, and, and also in Afghanistan, which seems to be most people just kind of forgot about Afghanistan after a while. Uh, not to say there wasn't a reason to be there, but it was never really communicated on a sustained way. And I see the same thing now. It's just that, oh, it's Russia, Putin, bad, bad, bad. We have to help Ukraine, which I, you know, I have friends and family who have family in Ukraine. I mean, this is a very heart-wrenching situation. But we have to look at the reality of the situation and we have to figure out how our politics can 
and our institutions can come up with the best strategies and the best approaches to it. Because after all, and this is more kind of an on kind of long running tirade, if you will, but I really have an issue with this idea of like technocrats and, and people who say that this is an issue that you know, people have no say in. This is about foreign policy. This is about really important stuff. And so therefore the people can't, you know, they don't, they don't get to play in this space. Well, there's only one outcome when you take that approach. And it's that the people eventually go the opposite direction of the experts. And I don't care if this is an energy policy or if it's in like Southeast Asian policy or if it's in Russia policy. We have to have a way to engage the people and say, this is what's happening. These are the stakes. This is why we think it's important. What do you think? And then coming out of that, we can come up with a good approach. But it seems to me that we're kind of failing on all of those fronts. Am I am I misreading the situation or is there a different way I should be looking at this? I do always find it entertaining that by virtue of having gone to school myself in the United States and having a child in school in the United States, I'm allowed to have loud opinions and try very hard to change education policy with my loud opinions. And people might roll their eyes at me, but you know, it is, it's a trope of American life, right? That we as citizens and especially as parents get to bring our ferocious ignorance of how education policy actually works into the making of education policy. But, you know, the fact that one of you might, you know, based on your experience having traveled abroad or having family living abroad or having, you know, sold things abroad or bought things from abroad that you might- Or having no experience at all. Right. But this is this is what's so interesting, right, is that it absolutely and, and I find I have to say it's not just how we treat the public, but invariably people who are super sophisticated in their own fields will say to me, well, I don't know what I think about that. And I'll say, well, you know, actually, it's 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 not. I mean, and this actually goes back to your earlier question about how we understand other societies, either you have the kind of mind that you're willing to sort of sit down and look at a problem fresh and say, okay, how do the players in this problem perceive it? Or you don't. And if you do, you probably are going to have interesting insights on international affairs. And if you don't, then you probably don't have any interesting insights about anything, but that won't prevent you from talking a lot. So I guess I'm, I'm agreeing with you that there's a problem. It is interesting that, I mean, this is something that the U.S. shares with, you know, even our our fellow democracies, actually, the public has considerably less influence on foreign policy than is the case in the U.S. And they often, one very often hears from Brits or Europeans um, or, or folks from Japan or South Korea, oh, thank goodness, we could never deal with the politics of foreign affairs the way you all have it. It makes you so much less effective. And this, I guess I sort of turn back to you, the Americanists, right? Because yes, we need our public to feel connected and to feel the master of what's done abroad in our name, but we also need to be able to do things effectively. And, and I'd say our system fails on both counts currently. Well, we have that going for us. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. I could probably talk about that for another hour, but um we're not unfortunately able to do that. Um, so I guess I would ask you one final question and, and then we'll wrap up, which is if there's anything else beyond what you've just said that you, you think scholars of American politics, students of American politics should be asking about the Ukraine-Russia situation right now. Something I'm thinking about a lot that I'd like to be thinking about connectively with folks who are who are domestically focused is really tracking 
all the ways that this is going to shift our domestic life, and then in turn, how those shifts in our domestic life are going to shift internationally. So let me just sort of tick off a couple of examples. One is that the problem of right-wing extreme nationalism that we have here is bound up with Russia. Russia has provided some support as, I mean, we could talk about that for hours, but it's not the case that that's a totally separate problem is an integrated global system. And how is that, how's that going to be affected and how's that going to affect our politics? Food prices are something I'm thinking about a lot. And then I get to this, well, okay, then what's going to happen when food prices go up in the US? And I think, ooh, I haven't thought about that in a long time. Climate and energy, where we have you know, the, a set of immediate ramifications, but a set of longer term ramifications just at the moment that I think we're going to have more of an energy conversation and less of a climate change conversation, I think, after this year's midterm elections. And so then how is that in turn going to impact foreign policy? And we're really, we're not used to being able to braid the foreign and domestic together in, the, in those ways, but that, you know, it, it's an entirely different way of thinking about how our institutional strengths and weaknesses have second and third order knock-on effects on policy choices. So I guess that's, that's the, the place I'd like to be taking analysis of this set of that's really interesting and I think really helpful and gets at a lot of the issues that I know some some people like to call intermestic, which I'm still developing my relationship with that word, but I think that that's a really good list. So Heather Halbert of New America, thank you so much for joining us and uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.